Hi there, my name is Matt Furness and this is The Culture Hack, a video and podcast series that captures experiences and life lessons from those who know culture best. The goal? To help you to understand, design and change your company culture. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Culture Hack. It's Matt Furness here from Click Culture Consulting, and I'm joined today by Nelson Derry. So Nelson is the global head of culture, diversity, equity, and inclusion at ESOP. He's spent the last 15 years helping organizations to build healthy cultures. He's been recognized by the Financial Times as one of the top 30 future leaders in the UK for his contributions to culture and inclusion. He's a best-selling author and regular conference speaker. And with all that experience, I'm really looking forward to talking to him about all things company culture. So welcome, Nelson. Thanks for coming on. Oh, what an intro, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. Jeez, I feel, uh, okay. I feel very, very positive now. <laughs> Good. I, I'm slightly out of breath, but I'm, I'm glad that it gave you the intro that you, that, you, that you deserve. So we'll be talking today about your experience shaping company culture, including the, the challenges you faced, what you did about them, the lessons that you learned. But just before that, you've got, we've spoken before and you've got a fascinating story and background. So to start, it would be great if you could just share a little bit more about who is Nelson Derry. Yeah, amazing. And listen, thank you so much for having me. Um, I, I've really enjoyed getting to know you over the last uh, last few weeks and months. Um, and yeah, I really feel honoured to to be here. So thanks for having me. Um, who is Nelson? So I think it's probably best if I start start from the beginning. Um, so I grew up in Nairobi, uh, in Kenya. Um, I was there for the first 12, 13 years of my life. Um, I had a bit of an well, it was unusual, but my my upbringing was um, I was raised by a single mom, um, an incredible, incredible woman, um, super entrepreneurial and uh, very, very, I want to say courageous, um, and not willing and and willing to kind of make some bold moves. Um, so so I, I wanted to kind of take you to the age of of six years old, right? So I. I have a younger brother. My mom's raising my brother and I um, by herself. We live in, I want to say, like the humble parts of Nairobi, if I can put it, put it mildly. Um, you know, we lived in a single room apartment. Um, if I'm honest with you, not, not too dissimilar to the dimensions of this room that I'm in right now. So things were pretty tight, pretty squeezed up. Um, but you know what I'd say, Matt, is perhaps some of the things that we missed out on, maybe the material things, um, were definitely outweighed by just all the things that I said earlier, right? The life lessons, the courage um, from from my mom. So, you know, um, at six years old, uh, my mom had managed to um, build up a little bit of savings, and she just—I guess she probably had this eureka moment where she's like, "If if my kids are going to emerge out of this particular situation um, financially, then you know, there's going to need to be an investment in in their education." And so she makes this big bold decision to say. Um, She's going to use all of her money to send me to my first year of a fee-paying school. Um, and the funny thing, Matt, is like she didn't have the money for the second year, and she certainly didn't have a Scooby-Doo how she was going to get the money for the third year. But in her mind, <laughs> this was the way forward. This is the thing that, that that needed to happen. And you can probably imagine the scene, right? Um, a lot of her friends and family thought it was an incredibly reckless decision to make. 
Um, but for her, it was, you know, it was very clear and, and this was the vision and she wanted to follow through on the vision. Anyway, she sits me down. Um, she gets the brochure from the school that I'm going to and I look through the brochure. I'm like, oh my gosh, this looks amazing. <laughs> like there's all of these things I can do because I loved everything to be doing with being outside of the classroom. Um, and um, she sat me down and she says, you know, obviously you can see some great things that you're going to experience. But she said, I wanted to let you know um, something else, which is you're going to be walking an hour to the school. You're going to be walking an hour back. Um, a lot of your friends are going to be driven in either by their chauffeurs or their parents. And obviously we didn't have a car. Uh, we couldn't afford a car at the time. Um, she talked about you might get to visit their houses. And um, I ended up visiting their houses, man. Some of them were incredibly beautiful, right? Um, and obviously I knew where, where we were at. Um, so I'm just sat here as a six-year-old thinking, wow, this is a really motivational um, speech, mom. I don't know if I want to go now. <laughs> um, but she, she said something at the end which um, really stuck with me. And she talked about about difference and what she said is I just want you to remember Nelson that your difference is and always will be your greatest strength um, and it was you know I didn't realize it at the time but it was a very profound statement in the way that I show up these days as well um, so anyway went to school and what I would say is the first you know it was tough financially uh, really really tough for, for my mom for us to manage it but you know as I said I I loved when I was there loved everything to be doing with outside of the classroom that was my difference sports music drama art and the teachers noticed that and um serendipity right they, the the, the head, headmaster found out about our financial situation and actually made a decision which changed things a lot, which was to um, offer a almost full-time full -term bursary for me to continue my studies there between the age of six and 13. And so you can just imagine this big, courageous vision that my mom had really coming to fruition and really getting that return on investment. But um, fast forward to the age of of 13 and it's kind of the time where you're thinking how are we going to afford to send Nelson to secondary school um I just happened to play cricket that day um little did I know that that day was going to change the trajectory of my life um so after the game but if you've played cricket before Matt yeah I play a lot of cricket yeah. play a lot of cricket okay cool yeah, so yeah, yeah. I I what did I do that day I think I took three wickets um and I scored something like 41 runs so the grand scheme of things not amazing but it was a pretty positive um you know positive day anyway after um after the game there's a parent the dad from the rival school that we're playing against he comes over to me and he says um you know congratulations but you played a really great game you played against my son that's who my son is usual kind of chat right nothing unusual that's what parents um would do and then the next day my coach calls me into the staff room and here I'm thinking oh my gosh what did I do now you know because you never you know often called into the staff room and he said listen um there's a gentleman that you were speaking to yesterday and he reminded me who he was he said just so you know he actually happens to be one of the wealthiest people in Kenya and also one of the wealthiest people in Africa and he we were telling him a little bit about you and a little bit about your story. And um, you wouldn't believe this, Nelson, but he's offering to pay and sponsor for you to continue your studies in the UK. So I, I, I guess, you know, just, just to be clear, this was a complete stranger. I'd never met this this gentleman before, never 
you know, or his son. Um, he had no connection to my school, no connection to my parents or my family. But, you know, his gift completely changed the trajectory of, of our lives. Um, and I, I, I like to start and share this story because I think it really does inform a lot of the values that I have and this, I guess, underpinning mission around unlocking potential democratizing opportunities for others, which probably has led to the work that I do that I do today. Um, but I also recognize that in some of the challenge and the struggle, I also had a lot of privilege. You know, I had a privileged education. And so there's this, there's this, um, there's this quote that goes, you know, if you're if you're lucky enough to do well, then it's your responsibility to send the elevator back down. And I feel a real sense of responsibility when it comes to that. Um, professionally, look, um, spent the first kind of decade plus in financial services, uh, worked at Goldman Sachs um, in a variety of roles, client facing operations, change in strategy within the asset management business. Um, a few years at um, other organizations such as the Bank of New York, um, leading their response to Brexit. And then I had this kind of my own eureka moment, which is I wanted to lead with my heart and I wanted to make the kind of impact that I wanted to make. And it started my transition into this thing we call people and culture. Um, and I, uh, I was lucky enough to to work at a management consulting um, organization, helping them build out their organizational culture practice. And then that just led me to ESOP. Um, so I've been with ESOP for coming up to two and a half years. Um, so I feel very, very grateful I get to do the work that I do. It's not easy, but I feel very grateful to have had the journey that I've had. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all that mm. background. And it makes a lot of sense in terms of how that shapes sort of how you operate now and your interest in culture and inclusion. Mm. Um, it sounds like a common thread in the stories that you told was people with privilege and power paying it forward and without obligation supporting people who needed help, basically. Mm. So firstly, the, the, the headmaster, age six, uh, introducing a free bursary and then when you were 13 the complete stranger paying for your education in, a, in another country I'm really curious why did he do it in particular the the the, the stranger why did he if you, if you even know why did he do that I think um I think that often um uh, you know I feel very very fortunate and I feel very very lucky but I also think sometimes you need to be putting yourself in a position where luck also finds you. And um, I also think that I think this started with kind of, you know, I, I start with my mom and I start with this comment that she made. She said, your difference is and always will be your greatest strength. And that showed up in what she encouraged me to do at school. Right. Absolutely. There was this expectation to do your best when you're in the classroom, but also do your best outside of the classroom. Um, I don't know how typical that was of the time that I was in when academia was really, really important. And that's probably what a lot of parents were encouraging their, their kids to do. Right. But if you think about how I was parented differently, I was encouraged to do all of these other things. I think because I was encouraged to do all of those other things that helped me to stand out compared to my, should I call them peers or classmates? Um, and there's something about repeatability, right? If you've got curiosity in something, if you've got a little bit of talent in something, you get better at it, right? And I just got better and better at sports. I got better and better at 
music and drama and all that kind of stuff. And I, I would say there were there was more than just um, my mom. There was more than just the teacher. There was there was my um, the coach that I I mentioned. Um, and I don't talk enough about him, but he would um, he would open up the music room because I'd arrive at school early because we could never afford to pay for piano lessons. But I I just was like just curious about this thing called the piano. And he'd he'd come in early into school. He'd open up the music lesson, music room, so that I could teach myself to play play the piano uh, for 20 minutes before school started. Um, after a sports game, he knew that I was going to be walking home. So if we had a sports match, so he'd make the detour to go and drop me off before he dropped everyone else off back at school. And this is the kind of generosity that just happened to show show up in in my life. And it was that teacher that made the connection because he was the one who was talking to this stranger about me. And so I guess if you see what I'm saying, I feel like there's something about leaning into your uh, the opportunity to lean into my difference had this cascading and knock on effect on the opportunities that then came and met <laughs> met me. Now, 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 why me? I mean, um, who knows? Um, this is this is somebody who has done incredible things in the world, right? He didn't just do this just for me. He's um, he's built schools in Kenya. Um, he's uh, made investments in in you know really philanthropic organizations. So he is just someone with a really good heart. Um, and I just happen to be part of what will ultimately be be his legacy. Um, and hence that kind of feeling that I. You know, I have this kind of responsibility to pay it forward as well. Sometimes it's mm. in small things as well. It's amazing. And I, I love the the um, the little idiom that you used about the elevator. Mm. Uh, what was it? So if, you, if you're on the top, make sure you send it down or something. Yeah, it's, it's if you're lucky enough to be successful, if you're lucky enough to do well, then it's your responsibility to send the elevator back down. Um, mm. I think often it's 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 quite easy to forget that um you know there's this kind of like this this saying that says alone you go fast but together you go far and i think a lot of people forget the fact that there have been people along their journey that have spoke up for them that have championed them that have sponsored them that have invested in them and i always yeah. say you know don't forget about those people that yeah. uh, changed your lives right um and when and that doesn't mean in a in its binary sense, only think about those people that helped you. It it's it's bigger than that. It's what can you do to have a ripple effect for everyone else because those things happened for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's 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 very rare that someone ever becomes successful or does well or changes the world by themselves. It's very yeah. rare they did it by themselves. It's often they got help along the way. Yeah, and psychologists talk about this idea of a, what they call a fundamental attribution error which is when you're successful, you attribute the causes of your success to yourself more often than if you were, if you failed at something, we are more likely to attribute the causes of that success to the outside world. And so what you're talking about actually is the idea that you need to combat that sort of default bias, as many people do, to acknowledge that you your successes are never wholly down to you and neither are your failures. Both of them are a combination of what you put out into the world and your own traits and characteristics. And 
the world, the outside people, whether people help or don't help you, whether people are being nice or whether they're being asses to you, right? Yes, um, yes, 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 yes. So I love that's that. What you, yeah. yeah. Uh, obviously, we are here to talk about culture, but what I'm picking up on is I imagine lots of these things that you're talking to me about around inclusion and belonging, I imagine they dictate your philosophy around what a healthy culture looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know what? Um, I've been in healthy cultures. Um, I've been in toxic cultures. I've been in healthy teams. I've been in unhealthy teams. Um, and I think, it, you know, it's you spend it's cliche, but you spend so much of your working day in work and within this team and within this this organization. Um, I think it's there's a duty to yourself to be in an environment that lifts you up versus one that tears you down. Um, you know, so I got this um, message from uh, a dear old friend at a previous organization, and it was just so needed at the time. And she said, I just wanted to let you know, Nelson, I see you and you're exactly where you're meant to be. Right. And that was really profound. And what it actually meant for me is, yeah, or at least what I kind of interpreted from that is, often it's not about what you're doing, it's sometimes about where you're doing it. It's not about what you're doing, it's where you're doing it. And you have to find an environment um, where you're able to ex you know, truly express the highest and truest expression of yourself. Um, you know, uh, I was reading this book uh, by James Clear, Atomic Habits, such a such a fantastic book. And he says something along the lines of the, one of the most effective things that you can do is to join a culture where the desired behavior is your normal behavior, where the desired behavior is your normal behavior. And I think that's really, really profound when you're thinking about, well, like when I think about culture, which is, you know, culture is ultimately underpinned by by the behaviors. Um, the behaviors that are rewarded, the behaviors that are tolerated, etc. Um, and it's often a very, very good barometer as to kind of, am I going to thrive and be successful here? Or am I going to, um, you know, am I going to drown? Um, and am I not going mm. to be successful here? Mm. And it sounds like there is some personal responsibility in that. And I, I, I immediately go to a sport context where lots of sports people, I think of, for example, Mohamed Salah, if you're listening and you don't know who he is, he's a he's a professional footballer. He, he spent years at um, Chelsea Football Club, wasn't doing particularly well, then went to Liverpool and was a completely different player. And for me, that showed that it's just that the playing style and the perhaps the culture and the environment around him wasn't right to suit him as a player. Mm. And I think I see that a lot in organizations where it's not that somebody's not good. It's just that they're a, a, a round peg in a square hole. Is that, is that the saying? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there is some personal responsibility, I think, to make sure you're in a culture that that really recognizes your strengths. I, what I'm curious, so there is some personal responsibility, but I also imagine the organization plays a really important role mm. in creating the type of culture where differences are cherished, celebrated, yeah. valued, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think that's I think that's really, really, really important. I also just wanted to I love the point that you made 
Um, and the example you gave around Salah, because I think often where this thing falls over, if there if there isn't actually clarity. So for, for me, you know, um, culture is not just this kind of mystical like thing that's out there that you just feel and you just sense, right? Um, I think culture needs to be thought of really intentionally and and by design, because as human beings, the thing that creates a lot of anxiety is a lack of clarity. And so if there's a lack of clarity of what that culture actually is, and if a culture, an organization can't define what its culture is, then it, it adds such a layer of subjectivity. You're kind of like giving it, it's kind of like by chance whether or not you're going to thrive through or not. And I think mm-hmm. there is, you talked about kind of responsibility. And I do think there's a responsibility on organizations on being quite clear as to what their culture is. And we can talk, we can talk more, more about that. Um, I, I love what you said around kind of this sense of, um, you know, this, this sense of being being seen and heard and being able to kind of be, be the best that you can. And, you know, I talk, I talk a lot about this, but, you know, one of the many things that I think organizations really need to be doing and thinking about is like, how, how do you make it safe for people to do that? How, how, how do you how do you create this? And, you know, it's, it's some people call it speak up, but, you know, a lot of people use psychological safety. But I think it's it's this sense of how do you create this environment where people feel safe to be able to speak up, um, to be able to contribute their ideas, to be able to um, constructively challenge, to be able to admit mistakes and to do all of those things. And it's not it's not held against you. Yeah, I think where we're at as a society in general, not always, is that I think most people recognize that psychological safety is important and Mm. sort of want to get there. I think pragmatically still people are struggling to do it so I'd be really curious to hear from your perspective what are some really pragmatic practical things that you as a HR leader or as a manager or as a just any form of leader what can you do or say to mm. practically and pragmatically build those feelings of safety? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, there's so many things I could talk to I'll, I'll talk to a few. Um, Susan Kane says there is no correlation between having the best ideas and being the best talker. <laughs> and I think that's a really, really profound statement because, uh, you know, Matt, if, if you think about um, if you think about a team and a team being tasked with solving a problem or a team being tasked with um, building some ideas so they can have a cre- creativity and innovation breakthroughs, what tends to happen is teams default to brainstorming, right? And if you think about the concept of brainstorming, it's very biased towards an extroverted thinker. And so what tends to happen, and I'm generalizing a bit, is you find that 80% of the ideas are coming from 20% of the people in the room. So there's a huge opportunity cost. You're missing out on a huge percentage of ideas. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying um, there's no relevance for brainstorming. Of course there is. But I I also believe in balance. And the more inclusive thing to do is to think about perhaps the more introverted thinking style uh, who needs some time, who needs some space. And so imagine if you could practically, when you're in these situations and scenarios, balance brainstorming with rightstorming. And rightstorming, I I don't know if I just made that term up, but I'm going to call it rightstorming. But everyone in the meeting, um, is invited to 
take the time to think and write down their idea or write down their contribution, but it doesn't stop there. And then you take the time to go through every single idea. It's amazing what happens, right? All of a sudden, the 80% of people who would have been excluded now feel included. They feel like, ah, I was able to contribute my perspective and it got heard and it got discussed. Mm. I feel safer. I feel more included. And then what, ah, the, the beauty of all of that is then decisions are being made based on the merit of the idea and not based on who it came from. Mm, mm. And that is so powerful because it, it it removes so many blind spots. And what happens to you as a team, you just become much more creative. You become uh, much more innovative and, and, and you really become a higher performing, a higher performing team. Um, I think, you know, let's, let's, let's talk another example. Um, a fast-paced business or uh, a kind of business where you're managing risk a lot, which I did in the, kind of my first kind of um, decade or so in financial services, and someone comes to you with, with bad news. And um, often the immediate thing is what happened, who was involved, why did, that, <laughs> why did that happen? And that's what I call blame, right? And there's this whole thing of just taking the moment and actually how might you replace blame and skepticism with curiosity, right? So maybe you replace the who did that, why did that happen with tell me more. Wow. Tell me more immediately creates this safe space to invite a conversation as opposed to a closed-ended uh, closed-ended question, right? It's opening up the conversation. Tell me more. Um, how can we figure this out together? What do you think, right? And it's these small practical ways of showing up as a as a colleague as a leader that creates a safer space so you replace blame with curiosity you replace skepticism with curiosity um uh, maybe i could i could keep going but uh, you know i think you know what's the other thing the mirroring effect right so if you're the most senior person in a room or in a team and you are consistently the first person to speak Without you even realizing, you might be, this might actually be coming from a place of positive intent, actually, right? You just want to like, just get the conversation going, right? And, you know, people feel, okay, now I can add and contribute. But what actually happens, and you'll know this far better than I will, but it creates what's known as the mirroring effect, where people will just gravitate and add and align to what you are saying, um, because they think that's the safest thing to do. And so you just lose out on the magic of what the true perspectives are. So those are probably, I could go on, but those are probably three really practical things that I would, I would, I would, I would share. I really like that. And I think, um, I really like those ideas. What I would say about right storming as well, you mentioned sort of extroversion versus introversion, but I think mm. as much as that, it's good for breaking down the hierarchy. Mm. What I've, my observation in, in meetings is if you just wrote down how the percentage of people that spoke and then you correlate it with the hierarchy, I would imagine that the most, not always, but in a stereotypical meeting, the most senior person talks the most, the second most senior person talks the second most, and so on and so on. So that right storming um, idea, I really like in terms of breaking down that tendency mm. um, to give to give the more junior people an opportunity to, to share their perspective, which is often valid and equally as, you know, worthy, right? Um, I agree. 
I agree. It also, um, whether you like it or not, um, and you'll know this, you get conditioned by your environment. And so in the example that you, you just described, if you're not able to share your perspective safely, what ultimately is going to happen is this thing we call homogenous teams. And the funny thing about homogenous teams, not so funny, but the interesting about homogenous teams is that it, it kind of like gives this illusion of collaboration mm -hmm. because things feel easy. You know, everyone's nodding their heads. You feel like you're a high performing team. Um, but the thing is, is that like easy does not translate into performance. Easy does not translate into performance. You need um, you need the safe space for that conflict and that debate mm. in an objective way to then make those innovations and those those breakthroughs and you know Patrick Lencioni in the five dysfunctions of a of a team he he talks about and I'm not going to get this right but he talks about this five layers um to to really high performing teams it's 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 about trust um what does he say so he says there's this trust um debate commitment um, accountability and results and so what he talks about is the reasons why most teams don't commit to a decision um, and therefore don't feel this sense of accountability is because there wasn't sufficient debate in the first place mm -hmm. so you know you've got that whole situation of yeah you know we've come to this decision everyone good yeah and then they go out of the room and they don't act on that decision because they didn't believe mm -hmm. in it Right. Mm -hmm. And one of the main reasons is because there was a lack of trust and there was a lack of healthy debate leading up to that decision. So I always say, like, lean into lean into that constructive challenge, because the medium to long term, you will see them return on investment. Mm -hmm. I think that I think there's a myth there that psychological safety is easy, comfortable. It's about everybody nodding their heads to each other's views. It's actually the opposite. It mm -hmm. requires discomfort and open debate and conflict mm. psychological safety isn't a soft thing it's a hard thing um actually to, to do it well completely completely and i think it's really important because i think that businesses are at risk of not being relevant mm. um, tell me more about that what do you mean by that yeah so um uh, I like to tell this story um, um, that comes from Matthew Said's Rebel Ideas book, and he talks about how in, I don't know if you've heard this one, but um, in 1958, there's this gentleman called David Bloom. Um, he's a product development director, and he's working for this luggage company. And, um, you know, this was like, uh, Matt, the golden era of travel, right? Concord, and, you know, it's a very exciting time. Um, but during this exciting time, he, he notices something um, when he's at the airport. He notices that all of these customers um, who are about to go and go on this plane to their you know, holiday destination, to get from A to B, they're like dragging this uh, suitcase and sweating and pulling their bags to get from A to B. And it's far from this kind of luxurious kind of environment that you know, this whole travel is meant to be. And um, he has this light bulb moment and his light bulb moment is, huh, imagine if you put wheels on the bottom of those luggage suitcases, <laughs> right? And he's like, game changer. He's like, absolute game changer. And so he managed to get to slot at the, um, the board of his, his company. 
and he presents what is a very well-researched, um, big-thinking idea. And he gets to the end of his presentation thinking this is a slam dunk. And he's just met with what can only be described as a very, very lukewarm reception. And these executives are saying, why on earth would customers want something as ghastly as wheels on the bottom of luggages, right? Like, why are they? And if you think about them, like these executives and you think about their position, they were in the best place to see innovation, to see the bigger picture. But what actually happened is they got trapped in their own paradigm. They got the trapped in this paradigm of unwieldy luggage. It made it too difficult for them to step beyond this paradigm. And obviously, Matt, you're right, we're, we're here decades later. We know who was on the right side of, of history. But this is what I mean about business because businesses can become irrelevant, right? It's that whole sort of blockbuster versus Netflix thing, right? Is that if you aren't intentional about breaking homogeneity and uh, creating an environment where you can have diverse and divergent perspectives, then just recognize you're going to be at a risk of not being relevant, right? And and, and that's what I mean. I, I, I think that that's the example that I'd give around the importance of inclusion, diverse perspectives, divergent perspectives, mm. and creating mm. that, that safety to be able to unlock those things. It's a great story. And I think what it makes me think of is how many other cases are there which are happening every day in organizations that simply aren't picked up on mm, um, mm. and all the different ideas that organizations are missing out on but they don't even realize what those ideas could be leading to mm. I think if, if I was being I think one observation is um, people listening might be saying that they agree conceptually but some of this stuff's harder uh, to do in, in, in practice and it is in theory, which is totally true. What I'd love to hear about is some things that you perhaps feel like you've got wrong over the years or mistakes that you feel like you've made and really learned from. Yeah, um, I think I've made lots and lots and lots of mistakes. Um, I used to I used to think leadership was about title. Um, I used to think leadership was about um, the ability to to manage big organizations, the ability to lead with confidence and assertiveness, um, the ability to project, right? That's what leadership once meant, meant to me. And I've since realized how wrong I was. Um, and actually leadership is something which is very, very different. Um, and I think leadership is, and, and I don't think I was intentionally doing this, but perhaps this is how it may have come out, is leadership is not a weapon to be wielded for your own personal gain. Leadership is a gift to be shared in the service of others. And then I think as soon as I recognized and realized that, I had a complete unlock in terms of how I needed to show up. Um, I, I, I needed to show up in a way that was bringing the best out of others. And I think all of this stuff that, you know, I'm talking just purely from a leadership's perspective for now, but, you know, um, I think leadership is about caring. You know, you, you, you don't need a title to lead. You just need to care because I think people would rather follow a leader with a heart than one with a title. And all of these things which we're talking about, it's just, a, it's just about starting from a place of I care about you and let's try and get to the best place. Mm -hmm. So, so I think, I think that's certainly something that I've, 
that's certainly something that I've le- I've learned because I, you see, for me, um, this this these topics can feel quite heady and they can feel quite academic, right? But at the end of the day, it's important to just personalize it around what is it that I can do to show up, mm-hmm. right? And if you just think about the collective, the collective of those things, like that's how you that's how you shift. That's how movements happen. That's how culture starts to shape up. So that's certainly that I've something that I've learned around my personal accountability and my personal responsibility in contributing to the change that I want to see. Mm. It makes me think about uh, a leadership development program that I was um, a part of years ago. And mm. one of the questions that we asked people is why should anybody be led by you? Mm. And getting people to think about, you know, think about it purely objectively. Why would somebody want to follow you? Mm. And as opposed to just because you've been promoted to head of or team leader or you know whatever it might be mm. so that you can be clear on the value that you're providing for other people because mm. they they will choose to follow you or, or not right well, well, um, on, on the topic of leadership as well I think that's probably a nice segue to your book which mm. is on the sort of new era of leadership so mm. talk to me about sort of the top line sort of ideas or manifesto that you're putting forward in that book Mm. There's something that you said earlier, which um, which I, I really loved, and uh, I'm going to steal that and just reframe it slightly. So um, I think there are fewer human desires than that feeling that uh, you're accepted for who you are, um, that feeling that you feel a sense of belonging. And Belonging is a very complex, multi-dimensional concept. So I'm gonna I'm gonna oversimplify it a little bit just for the purpose of the the question you just asked me, which is I think it's it's about I feel seen, I feel heard, I feel recognized for my contributions, and I feel celebrated for the unique person that I am. Um and the interesting thing is once people feel that, it's incredible how you feel more motivated, you feel more engaged. And that then translates into, I feel like I can perform more because I'm contributing more, right? There's a knock-on effect of all those things. Now, as a leader, how do you unlock those things that I just described, right? And when I started to think about that, some of the vocabulary that came to my mind was, and this isn't new, but it was about being empathetic, um, listening with curiosity, um, leading with trust and purpose, creating inclusion, psychological safety, situational humility. And, you know, the time that I was writing the book, um, I was reflecting on the, you know, it was, it was during the time of COVID and I was looking at the leaders around the world and the ones who were head and shoulders above everyone else were the ones that were leading with that new that new vocabulary. So you think about Jacinda Ardern and you think about just the the, the challenges and the complexity. Donald Trump as well, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. completely opposite, right? But yeah. but 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 you see, you know, and and you look at her leadership style and it was not command and control like it was historically. It was it was all about empathy. It was all about listening. It was all about being doing this together. And um, and those were the kind of the, the I guess the the starting point for why I thought this was a really, really important book that that, that I needed to write. And just a, a brief personal story is I, I. I remember when I first started my career in financial services and. 
I remember just very often being one of the few people of color in the room, right? And um, it's amazing how that showed up for me, which was I intentionally tried to make myself blend in as much as possible. I wanted to almost make myself invisible. And there was this particular um, department meeting that happened every week or every couple of weeks. And I would make my way to that meeting a good five to 10 minutes beforehand and seat myself in the space where I could blend in as much as possible into the room and not be at the center of the conversation. And when I reflect back about my contributions, I would only add to what someone was saying because and with confidence that actually it would be accepted and you know 80 i wouldn't get too much of a challenge and this would this would go on for a few weeks and then there was a new um new leader in the division and he started to join these meetings and i think he noticed me <laughs> noticed me doing those things and he hollered at me he said nelson i was like yeah he said i've saved a seat next to me come and sit here and I sheepishly walked around and sat down next to me. And it's really interesting, Matt, because he saved that seat next to him every single meeting. And it's amazing what that did for me, right? Because all of a sudden, I felt seen. All of a sudden, I started to cont contribute more. I felt like my perspectives matter. And when things went well, I, and I felt celebrated. And he was ahead of his time but he was leading with this vocabulary that I'm talking about. Mm. Um, and that just had a very, very profound impact in the kind of leader that I want to try and be one day. So yeah, mm. I wanted to just share that. Fantastic positive role model. And I, it mm. sounds like he was able to get out of you what others hadn't by making you feel like your differences were, were cherished as Absolutely. opposed to accepted. And so your mask or the covering that, that you were doing came down and actually you a felt better b probably contributed and improved your own performance and other people's performance right so it's a mm. it's a win-win so we've spoken about leadership we've spoken about culture mm. uh let's let's combine them and the question that i want to ask just before we wrap up is um what's culture hat that you really love so something that uh, an action that leaders can take that is pretty easy to do but will have a huge impact. Yeah, um, I, I'm i gonna take a component of that question and reinforce something, which is what you said at the end, what's the small thing? Because I think often um, people focus on the big transformational changes that need to take place when actually it is absolutely about the small thing that you can do. And, and we talked a little bit about the few small things you can do. The, the, you know, um, speaking last in meetings so that you don't create this mirroring effect is not a big thing. Um, inviting people to write storm as well as brainstorm is not a, is not a big thing. Mm. It's a small thing. But one thing that I'll say about small things is um, when you repeat those small things, you get this amazing thing we call compounding. Right. We get this amazing thing we call compounding and the compounding effect of these small, tiny behaviors is they then become habits. <laughs> and then the compounding effect of this, these habits being done day to day, every day, they then become norms. Those norms become culture.
that's how culture transformation happens. I think culture transformation is usually born from the small changes, the small behaviors, the small moments that are repeated. The only other dimension that I'd add is it's the things that are rewarded as well. So if those things are rewarded within an organization and they're embedded, um, that's when the magic hap- that's when the magic of compounding actually takes place. So that's what I'd say is I was like, I'd say, um, you know, try to focus on the small things as a leader, do them mm. consistently, and you'll then start to see the ripple effects. And your role as a leader is a cultural steward of the organization. And so what you do gets amplified. There's a higher degree of accountability um, on you as a leader. Um, and, and leaders should never forget that um, and mm. sweat the small stuff, right? The mm, small things mm. really, really make an impact. It's made me think about this uh, leader that I worked with once. Let's call her Jane. And mm. she 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 openly supported lots of initiatives around, um, you know, diversity and inclusion. At the bottom of her email, it said, I support inclusion with a rainbow flag. But then in meetings, she would go on her phone when other people were talking. She would mm. speak over people. When junior people spoke, she would say, I completely disagree. He would ignore people, how she sat, how she faced certain people, but not others, all created actually a very non-inclusive environment. Mm. And it's not that the things she would she was doing outside meetings weren't important, but they're almost irrelevant if you're not actually showing up in those small moments every day. Mm. Mm. It all made, also made me think about a piece of work that I was working on with a client around um, their values, their behaviours and their competencies. And the competency level, we were talking about what a senior leader needs to do to create an inclusive environment and you know other competencies of writing things like you need as a leader you need to create a, a listening culture and it's sort of like yeah you do but you also how many senior leaders do you work with that actually give a hundred percent of their focus and in a conversation they don't mm. and by saying you need to create this culture it almost makes it really hard for people to sort of grapple with whereas if you just say to senior leaders look every conversation you're in i want you to give 100 percent of attention to the junior person when they talk and to engage that will have a much bigger effect than sort of making it this grandiose thing you know it's about the little everyday moments completely Um, agree and there's um i think what is heavily underestimated is um it happens with intent and by design and not by chance because mm. some of the some of the things that you were just describing um your previous manager or leader are habits that they had mm. and so to undo habits you have to work at undoing those habits um and i think a big part of it is actually holding the mirror to yourself and that's a really hard thing to do to just I would imagine, imagine if that leader said to you, um, what can I do differently? Mm. Like really invited that, what can I do differently? And then all of a sudden be, be, you know, be open to listen to what's coming back. You might say, well, maybe in team meetings, perhaps you can do this. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that's where leadership starts. It's, it's, it's the fact that they recognize that leadership is not an end date. It's an ever growing evolution if you're okay with that and you're okay with being having a growth mindset my gosh you know the world is your oyster in terms of the impact that you can have Mm, absolutely and i think 
she was to do that she might have to ask it multiple times because people might sure. go hold on are you just doing this for an ego boost sure. or do you actually want it's almost like repeatedly asking that very simple question sure. and then and then actually acting on it so mm. when people see that oh they actually are interested in what i think about them mm. and they are, have actually changed then they'll come with you come to you with more opinion more of their opinions and more of their sort of insight but it requires that genuine role modeling anyway mm. we could talk about this all day and i'm really <laughs> conscious of your time and the listeners time so just before we uh, wrap up nelson do you, do you have any final reflections on our conversation or anything else that you'd like to share no i um i think it's a, you know for me I, i've really enjoyed this conversation because the more you engage in this kind of conversation the more you reflect and i i just encourage listeners within their teams to 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 table table what does psychological safety mean within our teams table um you know what does inclusion mean to us uh table how can we think about ensuring that we are inviting more diverse and divergent perspectives i think you know we, we talk about the small things and i think sometimes it's just about actually having the conversations to open up people's mm. people's minds because i certainly learn so much when i do things like this and talk about these topics with with the teams that i'm in um, it makes such a big difference so that's just maybe something that i just add which is to really lean into the conversation mm, absolutely yeah. not being scared of it mm. awesome Thank you so much. Uh, and just a, a huge thank you from me for for sharing, for, for holding the time, for sharing your time and your experiences. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Nelson. And, and if anybody wants to contact you with questions or anything like that, what's the best way to do so? Yeah, uh, LinkedIn's probably uh, probably the best way. Um, I'm relatively active on 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 LinkedIn, so love to love to hear from from new people, from different people. Love to learn from the community and their perspective. So, um, awesome. Nelson Derry is a great place to in on LinkedIn is a good place to start. Awesome, sounds good. Yeah. Thank you, Nelson. Brilliant. So I think that's probably all we have time for. Uh, all, the only final thing I think worth saying is if you like this episode, please do listen to our other episodes for more first-hand experiences and lessons on all things culture. Otherwise, that's all for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thank you, Nelson. Go well, everybody.